Welcome to 2016 with Astonishing Legends. We're coming at you live on tape from Studio 54. <laughs> you know, only one of the items of those three things you mentioned is actually true. It is 2016. And it was actually 54 degrees when we came into the studio today. Oh, that- <laughs> I should have turned the heat on. Well, that is true, yeah. No, but we like it extremes. If if you've seen our uh, our other photo where uh, you saw the heat extreme, this is the cold extreme. Yeah, 98. Uh, Yeah. That one's a, yeah, on Instagram. Anyway, that's from a while back. We have a couple of fun little announcements. Well, first, we'd like to thank the 49 listeners currently sponsoring us on Patreon. We are super grateful to have you guys, and if you haven't already received rewards, including swag for your contribution level, it's coming soon. To that end... After this show gets posted, we'll be posting two audio shorts of some behind-the-scenes conversations between Forrest and I for all of our $10 and above contributors with more to come. If you don't know what Patreon is but would like to help us keep the show going, please visit patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Another exciting news is part of our attempt to up the ante on our online presence, we're launching a YouTube channel. If you're a creative type with some production shops of one sort or another, and you're inspired by our show, we wanted you to have a platform to share your work with us and our listeners. Filmmakers Peter Sabatino and Zeke O'Donnell have already created a cool stylized animated short for the launch of the channel that was inspired by screenwriter Paula Pell's chilling story from last year, The Devil in the Diner. If an episode of our show inspires you to do a project of your own, Reach out to us at astonishinglegends at gmail.com. Our workload is too hectic to participate in your production process, but we will provide segments of show audio for you to edit down for your piece if needed. And selected submissions will be posted to the channel after review. I'll post a link to the Devil in the Diner video in the show notes for this episode, and we'll be publishing it across all of our social media platforms as well. Subscribe to the channel, and when we get to at least 100 subscribers, YouTube will let us rename the channel for Astonishing Legends, which we can't do until we get to that point. Okay, let's kick off 2016 with a trip to one of my favorite places in the country, the Grand Canyon. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. First, I would impress that the cavern is nearly inaccessible. The entrance is 1,486 feet down the sheer canyon wall. It is located on government land, and no visitor will be allowed there under penalty of trespass. G.E. Kincaid, Explorer, referring to a cave full of anomalous artifacts he discovered in the Grand Canyon. Join us tonight as we take a look at the story of Kincaid's cave. You know, I can't remember the first time I heard about the story we're talking about tonight, which is the... Story of Kincaid's Cave in the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. It's it's just kind of in the cobwebs of my mind. I think I might have heard about it even before you and I met all those years ago. But you and I have definitely discussed it off and on the past couple of years. Well, you're right. It is one of those stories that you hear early on that is a great legend because there's kind of no answer if it's true or not. There's Well, there's no follow-up. So yeah. it's tremendously frustrating. But again, that's why I appreciate the story, because I'd heard about this years ago as well. And I think you and I had always kind of kicked it around as like, ah, oh, we should talk about that one day. And then when, you know, then we had the, the podcast, like formally talk about it in depth. And then once you start peeling the layers back of the story, you realize that it's an onion with like two or three layers. It is not, there's not a whole lot there, but it has sparked... So much debate and controversy in its own way, and 
remains that way to this day. Well, yes, and, it, and what we should we should get to the point that the seed of the story is centered around a newspaper article in the Arizona Gazette from 1909, April 5th, I believe. Yes, yeah. April 5th, 1909, that points out that explorer G. E. Kincaid discovered this cave in the Grand Canyon on one of his trips down the Colorado River. And when he found it, and we're going to get more to the specifics of it here in a little bit, but when he found it and made his way to the entrance of it, which was very difficult to reach, he was able to determine that it was huge on its interior and that it contained a wide variety of, as Forrest says, anomalous artifacts. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it because it kind of clears the debate. There's so much debate of just what did he find? Did he find it? Did he exist? Did this trip ever happen? Or was this all a fanciful newspaper story? But it's a great story in the way that it starts out because it's just kind of put out there. And we're going to get more into this, of course, as we go along here. But to kind of set this up, there's actually two newspaper articles, the same paper, the Arizona Gazette, yes. published a, on March 12th of that year, 1909, kind of a lead-in story. So the seed a, for a, it. A seed for it with this character, G.E. Kincaid, who supposedly is only really the second guy to make a full geological survey of the waterway there going through the Grand Canyon, the Colorado River. Well, and I actually have the text of that first article. This is the blurb from the Arizona Gazette, March 12th, 1909. The headline says, G.E. Kincaid reaches Yuma. G.E. Kincaid of Lewiston, Idaho, arrived in Yuma after a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down the entire course of the Colorado River. Stopping at his pleasure to investigate the surrounding country, he left Green River in October having a small covered boat with oars and carrying a fine camera with which he secured over 700 views of the river and canyons which were unsurpassed. Mr. Kincaid says one of the most interesting features of the trip was passing through the sluiceways at Laguna Dam. He made this perilous passage with only the loss of an oar. Some interesting archaeological discoveries were unearthed, and altogether the trip was of such interest that he will repeat it next winter in the company of friends. And that's it for that first one. Well, there you go. So that's a, however you want to take it. That could be just a little blurb on something interesting that somebody's doing in the area for local interest, or it could be laying the groundwork for another article. Yes, which indeed followed on April 5th, just a few weeks later. Right. So what we want you to be thinking about, listeners, which we know you already are, <laughs> yeah. is the veracity of this. Is it true? Is it a hoax? And you can look at it from both points of view, as we always like to do. We like to look at everything, and, and we're going to try to give you as much information as we can about where we think this whole thing comes down. There's, right. there's and, a, and we don't want to ruffle any feathers. Let's say this at the onset, because as with most stories that we think are cut and dried, it's not. It taps into major beliefs about this continent, who was here first, what the legacy of these people were that may have left this uh, imprint, shall we say, on the American West. And it really speaks to huge ideas that are very controversial. You know, though, yes. It was a can of worms, like everything we do. And we talked about whether or not we wanted to read this second article, but since it's the seed of pretty much everything that follows on this story, which is still being talked about today, we felt that it was important to share it with you guys because we wanted you to understand where this all started. And where it ends. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right. So before we get to the text of the article from April 5th, 1909, I just want to quickly say it's important to remember that this was 1909. There is some... Uh, well, I'm just saying we're not necessarily journalistic so, trends, yeah, journalistic <laughs> trends that yeah. are certainly not politically correct no. or, or the opinions of these podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, right. We're just relaying the information. But the article is widely disseminated on the Internet. It's everywhere. So, yeah. So it's, it's easy to find. You can read it for yourself. But I think this sets the tone mostly, as Scott said, for two reasons. It tells the whole story and it's not it's not too long, but it's. The whole story, (laughs) meaning there's not much of anything at all after this that will enlighten you. So this is it. This is the whole story. All right. So here we go. Arizona Gazette, April 5th, 1909. By the way, very important to note, there is no byline for this. Yeah, no, that's... We have no idea who wrote this. Exactly. That will figure into a huge part of this mystery as we try to unravel it. It's a big clue. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. Headline, Explorations in Grand Canyon. And then we have some sub-headlines here. Mysteries of immense high cavern being brought to light. Jordan is enthused. And you're going to find out who that is in a minute. Remarkable finds indicate ancient people migrated from Orient. Orient, right. not necessarily <laughs> as politically correct these days. No, as but you know what? It just means the East. So okay. there's really nothing bad about it. All right. So here we go. <clears throat> The latest news of the progress of the explorations of what is now regarded by scientists as not only the oldest archaeological discovery in the United States, but one of the most valuable in the world, which was mentioned some time ago in the Gazette, was brought to the city yesterday by G.E. Kincaid, the explorer who found the great underground citadel of the Grand Canyon during a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down the Colorado, in a wooden boat to Yuma several months ago. According to the story related to the Gazette by Mr. Kincaid, the archaeologists of the Smithsonian Institute, which is financing the expeditions, have made discoveries which almost conclusively prove that the race which inhabited this mysterious cavern, hewn in solid rock by human hands, was of Oriental origin, possibly from Egypt, tracing back to Ramses. If their theories are borne out by the translation of the tablets engraved with hieroglyphics, The mystery of the prehistoric peoples of North America, their ancient arts, who they were and whence they came, will be solved. Egypt and the Nile, and Arizona and the Colorado, will be linked by a historical chain running back to ages, which staggers the wildest fancy of the fictionist. Next section, a thorough examination. Under the direction of Professor S.A. Jordan... The Smithsonian Institute is now prosecuting the most thorough explorations, which will be continued until the last link in the chain is forged. Nearly a mile underground, about 1,480 feet below the surface, the long main passage has been delved into to find another mammoth chamber from which radiates scores of passageways like the spokes of a wheel. Several hundred rooms have been discovered, reached by passageways running from the main passage, one of them having been explored for 854 feet and another 634 feet. The recent finds include articles which have never been known as native to this country, and doubtless they had their origin in the Orient. War weapons, copper instruments, sharp-edged and hardest steel, indicate the high state of civilization reached by these strange people. So interested have the scientists become that preparations are being made to equip the camp for extensive studies, and the force will be increased to 30 or 40 persons. Mr. Kincaid's Report 
Mr. Kincaid (laughs) – this line – Mr. Kincaid was the first white child born in Idaho and has been an explorer and hunter all his life, 30 years having been in the service of the Smithsonian Institute. Even briefly recounted, his history sounds fabulous, almost grotesque. Quote, First, I would impress that the cavern is nearly inaccessible. The entrance is 1,486 feet down the sheer canyon wall. It is located on government land, and no visitor will be allowed there under penalty of trespass. The scientists wish to work unmolested, without fear of archaeological discoveries being disturbed by curio or relic hunters. A trip there would be fruitless, and the visitor would be sent on his way. The story of how I found the cavern has been related, but in a paragraph, I was journeying down the Colorado River in a boat, alone, looking for mineral, some 42 miles up the river from the El Tovar Crystal Canyon. I saw on the east wall stains in the sedimentary formation about 2,000 feet above the riverbed. There was no trail to this point, but I finally reached it with great difficulty. Above a shelf which hid it from view from the river was the mouth of the cave. There are steps leading from this entrance some 30 yards to what was, at the time the cavern was inhabited, the level of the river. When I saw the chisel marks on the wall inside the entrance, I became interested, securing my gun, and went in. During that trip, I went back several hundred feet along the main passage till I came to the crypt in which I discovered the mummies. One of these I stood up and photographed by flashlight. I gathered a number of relics which I carried down the Colorado to Yuma, from whence I shipped them to Washington with details of the discovery. Following this, the explorations were undertaken. The Passages The main passageway is about 12 feet wide, narrowing to 9 feet toward the farther end. About 57 feet from the entrance, the first side passages branch off to the right and left, along which, on both sides, are a number of rooms about the size of ordinary living rooms of today, though some are 30 by 40 feet square. These are entered by oval-shaped doors and are ventilated by round air spaces through the walls into the passages. The walls are about 3 feet 6 inches in thickness. The passages are chiseled or hewn as straight as could be laid out by an engineer. The ceilings of many of the rooms converge to a center. The side passages near the entrance run at a sharp angle from the main hall, but toward the rear, they gradually reach a right angle in direction. The Shrine Over a hundred feet from the entrance is the cross hall, several hundred feet long, in which are found the idol, or image of the people's god, sitting cross-legged, with a lotus flower or lily in each hand. The cast of the face is oriental and the carving, this cavern. The idol almost resembles Buddha, though the scientists are not certain as to what religious worship it represents. Taking into consideration everything found thus far, it is possible that this worship most resembles the ancient people of Tibet. Surrounding this idol are smaller images, some very beautiful in form, others crooked-necked and distorted shapes, symbolically, probably, of good and evil. There are two large cactus with protruding arms, one on each side of the dais on which the god squats. All this is carved out of hard rock resembling marble. In the opposite corner of this cross hall were found tools of all descriptions made of copper. These people undoubtedly knew the lost art of hardening this metal, which has been sought by chemicals for centuries without results. On a bench running around the workroom was some charcoal and other material probably used in the process. 
There is also slag and stuff similar to mat, showing that these ancients smelted ores, but so far no trace of where or how this was done has been discovered, nor the origin of the ore. Among the other finds are vases, or urns and cups of copper and gold, made very artistic in design. The pottery work includes enameled ware and glazed vessels. Another passageway leads to granaries, such as are found in the Oriental temples. They contain seeds of various kinds. One very large storehouse has not yet been entered, as it is 12 feet high and can be reached only from above. Two copper hooks extend on the edge, which indicates that some sort of ladder was attached. These granaries are rounded, as the materials of which they are constructed, I think, is a very hard cement. A gray metal is also found in this cavern, which puzzles the scientists, for its identity has not been established. It resembles platinum. Strewn promiscuously over the floor everywhere are what people call cat's eyes, a yellow stone of no great value. Each one is engraved with the head of the Malay type. The Hieroglyphics on all the urns, or walls over doorways, and tallets of stone which were found by the image, are the mysterious hieroglyphics, the key to which the Smithsonian Institute hopes yet to discover. The engraving on the tablets probably has something to do with the religion of the people. Similar hieroglyphics have been found in southern Arizona. Among the pictorial writings, only two animals are found. One is of prehistoric type. The Crypt the tomb or crypt in which the mummies were found is one of the largest of the chambers, the walls slanting back at an angle of about 35 degrees. On these are tiers of mummies, each one occupying a separate hewn shelf. At the head of each is a small bench, on which is found copper cups and pieces of broken swords. Some of the mummies are covered with clay, and all are wrapped in a bark fabric. The urns or cups on the lower tiers are crude, while as the higher shelves are reached, the urns are finer in design, showing a later stage of civilization. It is worthy of note that all the mummies examined so far have proved to be male, no children or females being buried here. This leads to the belief that this exterior section was the warrior's barracks. Among the discoveries, no bones of animals have been found. No skins, no clothing, no bedding. Many of the rooms are bare but for water vessels. One room, about 40 by 700 feet, was probably the main dining hall, for cooking utensils are found here. What these people lived on is a problem, though it is presumed that they came south in the winter and farmed in the valleys, going back north in the summer. Upwards of 50,000 people could have lived in the caverns comfortably. One theory is that the present Indian tribes found in Arizona are descendants of the serfs or slaves of the people which inhabited the cave. Undoubtedly, a good many thousands of years before the Christian era, a people lived here which reached a high stage of civilization. The chronology of human history is full of gaps. Professor Jordan is much enthused over the discoveries and believes that the find will prove of incalculable value in archaeological work. One thing I have not spoken of may be of interest. There is one chamber of the passageway to which is not ventilated, and when we approached it, a deadly, snaky smell struck us. Our light would not penetrate the gloom, and until stronger ones are available, we will not know what the chamber contains. Some say snakes, but other boo-hoo this idea and think it may contain a deadly gas or chemicals used by the ancients. No sounds are heard, but it smells snaky just the same. The whole underground installation gives one of shaky nerves the creeps. The gloom is like a weight on one's shoulders, and our flashlights and candles only make the darkness blacker. Imagination can revel in conjectures, 
and ungodly daydreams back through the ages that have elapsed till the mind reels dizzily in space. Okay, here's the last section. An Indian legend. In connection with this story, it is notable that among the Hopi Indians, the tradition is told that their ancestors once lived in an underworld in the Grand Canyon till dissension arose between the good and the bad, the people of one heart and the people of two hearts. Machetto, who was their chief, counseled them to leave the underworld, but there was no way out. The chief then caused a tree to grow up and pierce the roof of the underworld, and then the people of one heart climbed out. They tarried by Pasisavai, which I guess is Red River, which is the Colorado, and grew grain and corn. They set out a message to the Temple of the Sun, asking the blessing of peace, goodwill, and rain for people of one heart. That messenger never returned. But today, at the Hopi villages, at sundown can be seen the old men of the tribe out on the housetops gazing towards the sun, looking for the messenger. When he returns, their lands and ancient dwelling place will be restored to them. That is the tradition. Among the engravings of animals in the cave is seen the image of a heart over the spot where it is located. The legend was learned by W.E. Rollins, the artist, during a year spent with the Hopi Indians. There are two theories of the origin of the Egyptians. One is that they came from Asia. Another, that the racial cradle was in the Upper Nile region. Herein, an Egyptologist believed in the Indian origin of the Egyptians. The discoveries in the Grand Canyon may throw further light on human evolution and prehistoric ages. All right, that concludes the article. The first thing I want to say in terms of things that are, you know, I wasn't comfortable reading is the whole idea that Native Americans in the area of the Hopi were descendants of the slaves of whoever made these caves. Oh, boy, you have not even scratched the surface, my friend, of the things that, as we said earlier, ruffle people's feathers. Yeah. All this. There was an idea back then of, of superiority and inferiority and, and that sort of thing. And, and we're not promoting any of that. I just want to make that absolutely clear. I don't I think it's jumping to conclusions to try to discuss discern relationships between if this cave even exists yeah, between yeah. who was in it and who currently lives in the area and who is lord over whom yeah but uh to your point though this ties into a much larger everything is connected again kind of can of worms uh whatever metaphor you like here in that it, it ties in with the mound builders of the midwest of the Mississippian culture. You can look that up. More. I, we can't get too far into that. Which does not necessarily have to do with Mississippi. Well, it's a big general area. <laughs> Southern Illinois yeah. to Ohio, all, all those parts. And the mounds that these, the, these sometimes 30-foot high uh, earthen mounds, uh, which they found all kinds of artifacts in. And who did this? Because it does not match what the current Native Americans, the indigenous peoples of North America currently, it is so radically different. But that sparks the argument, though. Who was here first? It's, it's about people's heritage. It's about their legacy. It's about their achievements. And so when you come in and say, like, well, these folks were here first, and they had a much, or at least a slightly better and more advanced civilization, they seem to have more achievements, it's, it's going to rile some people. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but we're not okay, out to so do then you get into yeah. the whole business of defining achievements and what advanced actually means. Yeah. I mean, what's their better uh, standard of living, shall we say? What more of a mark have they made on culture and society to this present day? Well, obviously, there's a lot of things that have been lost, even that we know of, like with the Anasazi. 
and to the Native American peoples that came after them. Yes. There are a lot of mysteries out there, and that's what we like to explore. We want to see both sides of it. Entertain options with an open mind. Yes, and and, uh, just for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Anasazi, these were otherwise known as the cliff dwellers who lived in the southwest region of the United States. Right. Who had long thought to have like just completely vanished, although at least when I was a kid and my dad took me to all the national parks that had a lot of the ruins – That was the idea then, although I think now currently there's more just an idea that they – that their descendants are still living and had worked into other tribes and that nothing really mysterious. There's not just a vanishing. It was a mothership that came down and (laughs) took them to another place in the sky. But But those uh, ruins, by the way, I just want to say Canyon Canyon de Chez, which is spelled C-H-E-L-L-Y, and also Mesa Verde. National Park, unbelievable, really cool places to check out. When you go and you see these structures, it, it really takes you back in time. Yeah, well, yeah. You, you again, you can go check out these areas. They're well known to us. But the question is, which still is hotly debated to this day, is who did this, why, and what's the time period? Because it does affect people's origin stories and even scientifically, it, this is a huge thing that we're talking about here because people think that there's a conspiracy to keep some possible alternative history suppressed. Right. And because so, it's going to be so upsetting, you don't even need to know this, and plus we don't want to have to rewrite a bunch of history books. Right. Which I don't know what the problem with that is because you're already charging like $90 a copy <laughs> at student stores all over the world. Uh, or country, yeah, I should say. Right. Uh, but the problem is that it has to do with – ideals and, and and again it's 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 people's identity which they guard very cautiously and their cultural histories speaking of identity here's what I'd like to do I'd like to go back and take a look at the article that we read and and part of the reason we also wanted to read that was if if you didn't find it online or you weren't in a position to find it you can go back and listen to the article and reference it as you as you work through this episode of the show. But when you say people's identities, the first person's identity yeah. that I want to talk about is G.E. Kincaid. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I'm not convinced that G.E. Kincaid is a real person or ever existed. And this is why I'm going to say that. And if you have counterpoints to this, I'd, I'd love to hear them. But first of all, as we said before, there is no byline to this article. No one takes credit for writing it. And we'll come around to a whole theory that relates to that later. And there were the two pieces that both appeared about three or four weeks apart. Whoever did write them, they clearly, if it was a hoax, they had a plan. We'll do this one. We're going to plant this little seed. Three weeks later, we're going to follow up and we're going to put that whopper in there about the cave. Or it's the way it really happened. But G.E. Kincaid, there is no record of him in relation to the Smithsonian Institute. Now, as you research this material, which Forrest and I have been doing for a couple of weeks now, when you drill down into it and you look, there are people that will say, well, the reason Kincaid and the Smithsonian aren't connected was because he was not ever directly in the employ of the Smithsonian. He was more like a subcontractor hired by Professor S.A. Jordan. Exactly. Who did work for the Smithsonian, right? No. Oh, he didn't either. Well, so <laughs> well that's another. The, well, no, not under. I'm sorry. Under the direction of Professor S. A. Jordan, the Smithsonian Institute is now prosecuting explorations, et cetera. Under the direction of Mr. Jordan. Right. Also, Who is also possibly a fictitious character. He's a or, ghost. Ba- or based on a real person, but the name has been changed. These are all the elements with which we are trying to paint the picture here, which is the people in the story, the story itself, what the story purports to claim. All very mysterious with no 
conclusion to it. And I will say this, that there is no proof for and against it. You can't disprove it either in a certain sense, other than you can say that uh, because there's a lack of evidence, it seems very unlikely. But, there, but there's, no, there's no one coming out saying like, hey, you know what? I was around in 1909, and that guy did not work there at that time. Had we the money. Yeah. Had you would we go back money. in time? No. <laughs> had we the money, you and I would rent a chopper yeah. and fly down to this location where, well, where it supposedly is and check it out ourselves. You could, but it's a no-fly zone. Yeah, this you can't, also even, you can't even fly below the rim anymore, I don't believe. No, and Scott Walter, who we, we've mentioned on the show, is doing a search at a similar area, which is connected in some and thematically in some way here called Burroughs Cave. Russell Burroughs uh, reportedly had a cave that I think he's going to go check out. And it's not easy. So somebody suggested the use of drones, which I don't believe that they're going to like allow you to do that. You crash that drone and now you've got a piece of junk in, uh. stuck up on a high wall that nobody can get to just rotting away with lithium batteries. Right. And 200 yeah. years from now, two other guys will be talking about the drone that was found <laughs> in the cave. And the explosion of the hoverboard type batteries yeah. on, the, on the side of a cliff and, and uh, all the problems that would cause. Uh, so, but that's part of the thing as well. No one knows where this thing is either. It's, it's been lost. Now, there was one gentleman, we're going to get to uh, his, his blog entry on, online as well, who's claimed he has found it, uh, the location. Yes. Uh, but essentially, for all intents and purposes, the location is lost. These guys may or may not have existed. No one knows. There's no proof that they didn't exist. I, I, nobody's coming out to claim that this is a hoax directly. Right. Yeah. And, so, I, uh, and I, I, again, I don't want to give away too much at this point, but that's kind of what we're starting off here. So we're going to take this in steps, is that at this point, no one knows who wrote this article. There's no proof of anyone at the paper doing it other than it was a front page story, major story in this paper, which I believe at the time was the second largest paper in Arizona. In Ar- in Arizona. One of the two more respectable Yeah. Now, it, it, now, as Scott mentioned earlier, uh, before we started recording, it, it probably wasn't the most respectable. That that maybe at the time was the Arizona well, Republican. Well, I mean, relatively, um, yeah. you know, for the country and the and the state itself. No. Because, and, and that's one of the things. You'll see all kinds of confirmation bias when you're researching this. Right. Because when you read some, even some of the books that we have at our disposal, and they talk about, in a very respectable paper, everything. <laughs> yeah is skewed. The people who are in favor of this story being true write about it very factually, almost as though they had been there. And the people who think that it's a hoax, we're like, this is absolutely absurd. It's been proven a hoax. The bottom line is it hasn't been proven anything one way or the other. Yeah, that's exactly. That's the point I'm trying to make here is that you can't prove it. You can't disprove it. I think I mentioned a little while ago, maybe in the last episode, that I served on a jury, which was interesting. I recommend that everybody do it at least once. You don't need to do it five or six times. Well, it kind it's not of, like a choice you make. That, that is true. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting you get out of it. I'm just saying, like, after after you see the process, which I found very interesting, you get the idea, and it's your duty. So anyway, I had to go do this. And what you realize, it, and this was debated in the jury room, that you have to re-instruct people about is that they want to say, well, where are the facts here in this case? I want to know who who did what, who threw the first punch in this case. And that's really, it was a slap and a punch and get a <laughs> Yeah, uh, going I don't think on. You're supposed to talk about your case. You can afterwards. Oh, yeah, okay. you, actually, the the judge tells you, you I can write a book about it. All right. Well, I'm, was, I'm wearing yeah. a wire. Just so. okay. <laughs> I don't want to know where. <laughs> in any case, you know, what we're saying is that uh, you get into the jury room, and people's natural reaction is, well, uh, well, let's look at the facts. Let's look at like what happened when. And you, what you have to discuss in the jury room is that there are no facts. This is all hearsay. It is. It is literally. He said. She said, and in my case, it was she said, she said, but like, you don't know who 
through the first punch. All you can do is you can hear the testimony, uh, the now, things that are presented. Clear. Your, your trial was about a cat fight? Are you are you being uh, misogynistic in that? No, it wasn't too misogynistic. Feet. It wasn't I guess too, it is. Uh, I don't know. I I just you know I'm so afraid I'm of upsetting anybody. <laughs> I'm just, not afraid. Yeah, I'm no, no. going to go ahead and upset. You. That's fine. No, I think I think you can say that in a in a joking uh, uh, but heartfelt and loving manner, <laughs> which was not which was not the case. Basically, somebody upset the other one. They there was insults. Uh, supposedly hurled at uh, one another, and next thing you know, there's a there's a slap and uh, a slap and a punch thrown, okay. which is illegal. But the, what we're getting at is like there's no video of this, there's no proof. All you have is people who saw something, and then you have people for this person testifying in their favor that they saw it one way, the other people saw it another way. And so what I'm getting at is that you have to take all of this, these stories, and your final decision is what sounds beyond a reasonable doubt, what sounds like the truth to you, and you have to decide on that and vote that way. Well, and I think at the, at the end of the research that you and I both did for this, I think we've, I think uh, I was explaining it before we were recording. It's yeah. a little bit of a Venn diagram. I think that you and I are intersecting <laughs> on some of the beliefs relating yeah. to it. Although we might, we might, if you if the chips were down, we might come down in different camps. The more I've been doing this, the more I've been researching over uh, you know a lifetime, but seriously in the last you know three or four years here. Seemingly less seems to me to be impossible in that you hear of so much stuff that's been found, and I'm talking about artifacts now, just within North America, that can they all be possibly faked? Are they all, is every, you know, are thousands and thousands of people lying? And and literally when it comes to the mound builders and artifacts being found, it was in the thousands, I think, during the 1850s on into the, t- yeah, the century one and afterwards. In, one in 10 of the mounds had artifacts in it and yeah. they made the very good point that if it was a hoax right someone had a, practically an army to execute it <laughs> all over all <laughs> over the central united states and yeah. now we see into the southwest they're all over the place and as we're finding more stuff more research is being done by folks like scott walter uh we're referencing the hooked x and possible viking tablets here right. way that's before an, I think, columbus i think that's the name of his book by the yeah, way the he has a tv x. show yeah. as well America Unearthed, I yes, believe. Yeah, yeah, it's a good show. Yeah. So my my larger point here is that uh, it's you know look it's it's like with the Shadow People episode we just did, which was probably our most commented on show. I will say of folks writing in with their heartfelt stories, which I and, and look if you tell me this happened and uh, and it sounds reasonable to me, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. That show alone has been listened to as of I think yesterday over yeah. 120,000 times. I know, which is crazy. But yeah. but what we've noticed is that we opened to floodgates of people with their personal experiences, and, and sure, some of them they'll, they're readily admitting. Yeah, that was probably just regular sleep paralysis. However, something else happened, which is way beyond that. Are all these people just experiencing the same physiological phenomenon or something else happening? And I can't tell you what's happening. All I can tell you is that it's beyond a simple explanation. And that's what I'm getting to here. I don't believe it's just a a common line that's easily explained. We We have elements here within this newspaper article, to me, that sound genuine. Uh, it's it's all sure it's all a little far fetched because we're just not used to this. We're well, not used to being taught about this. So let's come back to that. Yeah, because I think people know that we we tend to use. I, I'm a whatever gold level member at Ancestry.com. <laughs> yeah, you. We are yeah, currently pursuing them uh, yeah. as sponsors, by the way. And I love to get on there and try to find the people that our shows are often about. Yeah, I think we're both looking for major pins we can put in the story here to anchor our opinions and our conclusions around. And the one, 
Find out if these guys are real. Yeah, and Ancestry is great for that. They they do not have any shadow people on there, but they do have the, the, <laughs> the real black, people. Yeah, yeah Mister Blackhead. Yeah, yeah, Black Eyed Kids yeah. or Ender Colts not on there either. But <laughs> my my point about that and and the Ancestry connection and and it was just honestly cursory research. On yeah. the, I didn't spend a lot of time. <laughs> right. I could have really tried to dive down. It but gets too crazy. Yeah, yeah I couldn't. I, I guess what I want to say is I could not find a G E Kincaid right. or Professor S A Jordan. Yeah. Anywhere. I couldn't find anyone really even close. And it's hard because these people, it's only their first initials in this story in both cases. Right. But we do have some background on Mr. Kincaid, who is listed uh, oddly as being the first white person born in Idaho. <laughs> well, I can't confirm that. You know, uh, that, that's where my ancestors, my, on my dad's side, my, they settled coming out here from, uh, you know, as, as people do since the early 1700s, late 1600s, migrating here from Virginia on west, resided in Lewiston and homesteaded nearby. So right. I have Lewiston, family there. Lewiston, by the way, is the town Kincaid is supposed Yeah, to which from. at the time was the major city uh, along the major route in Idaho, more so than even Boise. But I've never heard of the guy. <laughs> not, that, yeah. not that I would or my, my relatives would have. I, I can't – I don't know about the, the first white child, you know, <laughs> born uh, – he was born a poor white child. Yeah. I don't know. Um, look. That's a reference to the jerk for you youngsters out there. Well, that's going way back, yeah. That's an element, though, to the story that he was, you know, born the, the, the only white – the first white child in uh, Lewiston, Idaho, because it anchors the story – all I know is that would have been an early time for the state of Idaho in and of itself. Now, where I grew up, there's a Cataldo Mission, and that's 1848, I believe. And that was one of the first European structures or incursions of, of white folks, Europeans, into the area that we know of in, in modern in modern era here. So I'm not – again, it does. it's not fantastical, but it's just a little element that, uh, again, it, it grounds the story if it's fake. It's a good little tidbit to throw in there. I agree. If it's real, well, who well, knows? Well, and the other thing, quickly, is that when you abbreviate the first and middle name of someone, it makes them nearly impossible to track down. Oh, really? When you when you do your researching? On, well, yeah. Uh, if it's G.E. Kincaid. Is it George? Is it yeah, Guy? Exactly. Is it, I guess you know, so. Right. And, and the same thing with Professor S.A. Jordan. How many names start with S? Yeah. And I found a George F. Kincaid, but right. he did not live in Lewiston. I found Guy Kincaid, but yeah. no middle initial. And that's where I was saying if I spent more time, more than just a cursory glance at it, yeah. it's possible if I spent hours and hours and possibly even weeks, I could find a Kincaid yeah. with a G-E in it. But I couldn't even find any Kincaids with a G in their name. Yeah. And Lewiston, not to say that Ancestry is the ultimate database of all time, but it is pretty thorough. It is pretty thorough, but you also have to keep in mind that, as, as you are often saying, you know, when you when you get to frontier pioneer times, yeah. not everything's documented. That's true. Uh, and census recording, I know a lot of folks up there to this day that don't want to be included in a census. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, for their own personal political reasons. But the fact is, is that it's also spelled in a couple of different ways, as we've seen in the documentation, the, the newspaper article spells it k-i-n-k-a-i-d yeah we've also seen them probably the more common spelling c-a-i-d so yeah. that makes it difficult and it might the, the initials might be just a newspaper stylistic of the time to to just yeah. have the first two initials That's true yeah uh, but there's a lot of elements going on here that are, are speculative and can be speculated on and there's an article we're going to get to which I think it takes a bit of a debunky tone to this, but yes. it does make some pretty good arguments 
uh, for where these names may have originated and, and what might be their source. Anyway, so you've made the point that these guys are a little bit ghostly, hard to track down, if, uh, and nearly impossible. Yes. Well, really, really impossible because there's no one seemed to have no one seemed to have done it. Although there's a lot of people who you'll you'll see on blogs and links we'll post later on the website where people are just making claims. And yes, we can't substantiate any of them. So, just quickly, what I'd like to do as we move through the article and sort of the specifics of it and where where, for example, the cave might be. He does mention the El Tovar Crystal Canyon, which in itself that phrase doesn't really mean anything. There is not. An El Tovar Crystal Canyon. There is a resort. There right? is a yeah. hotel yeah. that was famously opened roughly in that time at yeah. Roosevelt stayed there, the El Tovar Hotel, which yeah. is still there on the South Rim. Used to be one of the Fred Harvey properties. That is exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So and the and the El Tovar Hotel does, you can see from it if you look to the north and a little bit west, I believe. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. <laughs> so we fact check as much as we can, but yeah. I'm not looking that up right now. But I'm pretty sure I've hiked the canyon several times, and I'm a huge fan of it. I'm pretty sure I know exactly the direction you need to look in to see this. You can see a canyon that contains a creek, Crystal Creek, mm-hmm. uh, which is a tributary that comes into or goes out of the Colorado. I'm not yeah. sure. But I guess the theory is that El Tovar Crystal Canyon is the canyon that surrounds the Crystal Creek, and it, which can be seen from the El Tovar Lodge if you look sort of in the right general area. Yeah. That was the first reference point. That's not where it is. I no. And I don't know if I said that's where it is, but it's not. It's 42 miles, I believe, up the river from that point according to Kincaid. Well, yeah, you can make – people have made the assumption that you're going with the current. So right, up, up the or river, down, you know, yes. it's, it's, a, it's a turn of phrase here, but basically away, 42 miles away from this known fixed point. Yes. That's about all you're going to get. That, yeah, that's the best yeah. – yeah, and you're, and you're kind of guessing that El Tovar Crystal Canyon really means something, whereas if you're taking the hoax approach to this, it's just a collection of words – put together that sounds official. <laughs> That's yeah. the thing that, yeah. you know, my wife was in the Groundlings. I've mentioned this before. <laughs> yeah. And I went to a lot of her shows. I never did any shows myself, but I learned yeah. about improv. I learned a lot about improv. Ah, yes. Uh, you know, Second City, that sort of thing. Um, and of course, the Upright Citizens Brigade. There's a thing that the Groundlings would do called expert talking. And in expert talking, you stand up and you say, I'm a car mechanic. And then people yeah. ask you questions and you just say whatever you can to sound real. El Tovar Crystal Canyon could be a little bit of an expert talking thing, or it could be an actual reference tying together this landmark of the El Tovar Hotel yeah. and that creek. I'm just saying it can go either way. No, that is an element, again, that we're going to get to this article written by Don Lago here. I'm yes. Just gonna, I'm just going to preference this. Uh, it's a great article. And he is not a mafioso. His, actually, his first name is Don. His last name is Lago. Thanks for clearing that yeah, up. Yeah, no, because it does. You were right. <laughs> Forrest was joking around before we started recording. He was like, Don Lago. Yeah, it's. it's uh, Don Lago. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. With, no, it was. It's it's well researched. Now, again, that's the one I said that's earlier. That's character, by the way. <laughs> oh, there, there'll be more if I, can, if I can muster them and he won't cut them out. Uh, what I was going to say, though, is that it, it's well researched, but it does have a tone one way or the other. It's a little debunky, I would say, because he, he again, as those things kind of go, he lumps in a bunch of different topics all into a kind of maybe a pseudo tinfoil hat. He alternative. Does, well, it's no, no, well I'm saying, written, though. Yeah, He's no, no, not no, as no, no, bad I, I, as some of the people who are just like, 
setting Abs- out no, no, to, to crush your dreams. Absolutely. No, no, no. <laughs> it's it's very well researched because the, the documents that he's pulling information from, I checked out myself, and you could see that he's accurately relayed the information from other websites and material. And it's intelligently written, and it's a good read. We're going to have a link to that, of course, as a PDF. But what I'm saying is that he made a, a good point there is that, you know, one tactic to make something fake a statement of sorts is that you include a lot of things that sound very factual and official. And he makes the point that, well, the people that are really behind this, all they have to believe is that, well, this was on the front page of a newspaper and who would lie about that? Yes. And and there's factual things in here that are that are kind of concrete. But and so I get it from either way. And again, then may, maybe this bleeds into we often talk about this about the fuzzy Bigfoot photo and yeah. and, and the fuzzy UFO photo. If it's too fuzzy, oh, obviously that's fake. Yeah. It's uh, somebody's crappy uh, cell phone. You know, cell phones have good cameras on them now. If it's crystal clear, well, obviously that's fake. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to you know because it's too clear. This was set up. Obviously it's Photoshop. So you have to pick some ground in. There. Again, you don't have all the facts. You're going to have to make a judgment for yourself, which is what we always invite you to do. But what we're, what we're laying out here as we go through the article, the thing that we're going to mention in the article is what it's, what does, how does that sound to us? Does that sound yeah. realistic? Does it sound like a, a slid-in little tidbit to get your uh, your believability well, going? And I just want to say in the grand scheme of things and going back to expert talking and that sort of stuff, I also want to mention that one of the signs of lying is when there's a ton of details. Too much detail, yes, perhaps. because there's so many details. And the reason, for instance, when a criminal gets picked up yeah. and is trying to explain their alibi and they're, I went into the thing and I was wearing red <laughs> shoes. and da, da. Right. The details are told according to this, the science of people who recognize yeah. when someone's lying. Yeah. All those extra details are because they know you don't believe them or they, they're so afraid that you're, and, and they don't believe it themselves. So they, they add all those in there. Yeah, I used to be in a barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois. And Usual the, suspects. <laughs> I, I farmed coffee and it was – this is great. This is, this is terrible. Yeah. yeah, no, the point <laughs> is that you're, you're weaving a story here that carries the person because it, it just – you're being receptive to hearing it. So when you add too many details though that are – it seems too packed full of details. Well, this story is full of de- – I mean just the, the dimensions, the things they found. Right. Does it make sense? It's multicultural, you know, and it, all the implications here with the transoceanic, pre-Columbian transoceanic, well, you know, a migration of different cultures that preceded the Native Americans. There's a – this thing is a big it, mess well, in a way. Well, no, no. I, I would say that it leads to that. Right. But – this doesn't encapsulate all that. That's a, that's the bigger story I was trying to mention and talk about before is that there is a giant prehistory line of thinking, a belief system from things that have been found by a lot of people over many years now that have led people to believe this. But that is not the established archaeological line, shall we say. No, it's not. And yeah. and as you as I think you already mentioned, there have been some implications that – if the Smithsonian was involved in this, that for some reason they are not really interested in sharing the information that's been yeah. found there, which there, even as I say yeah. that, I'm like, I sound like a – speaking of tinfoil hats. <laughs> oh, the Smithsonian's covering it up. Well, no. You know? there, there's two – there are two prongs to that I will mention here that I that I believe. There's one – I've seen this happen personally with inquiries that I've made about different questions and, and artifacts, shall I say, I've come across – the two prongs are one, it's just dismissive, like, well, that doesn't look important, or I'm not even going to waste my time answering the question or, or telling you what I think. Two is that, well, we do know, that's the more conspiratorial tone, is that we do know something about that, but we're going to deny it, and we're going to suppress it. Yeah. And overall, I would say that there are a lot of people 
that are upset, especially in the West, I think, about the what they see as exclusionary practices of the national park system and major institutions of not giving them the whole story and kind of like going towing the line with, Are the, you with the making thing. reference to the uh oh, the occupation the, of the wildlife preserve right yeah now, that doesn't really <laughs> that has to do with archaeology that does yeah. well tie in with kgc that does have to do with uh, the rights of people locally yeah. shall we say to do what they think is right and the uh the suppression they say of, of forces above them getting back to the point the things you mentioned in the article here the, the original newspaper article which scott read I would say don't go too far into the realm of the fantastical, as we're going to get to this other character a little bit later here, which may explain the origin of this. I say for what it is, it actually seems very grounded. And and, and, the, and the newspaper story, and I'll make this point later when we get to it, is that it seems to be pretty well done. Well, yeah, I agree. And I, I quickly, just because we touched on it a little bit, I want to talk about a, um, a book that Tess gave us in the reference in the research material references for this. By the way, thank you, Tess, for this show. You really helped us get it together quickly. But she mentioned a book called Suppressed Inventions and Other Discoveries, which was written by author Jonathan Eisen. And on page 220 of that book, there is a quote that I guess he got from a Smithsonian employee who I don't think necessarily represented the highest levels of the organization. But here's what it said. I'm going to read this little excerpt. This was about the World Explorers Club that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Did you want to do some backstory before I read this? No, go ahead. That okay. involves uh, Childress, who's okay. the president of the club. Okay. Yeah. The World Explorers Club decided to check on this story by calling the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., though we felt there was little chance of getting any real information. After speaking briefly to an operator, we were transferred to a Smithsonian staff archaeologist, and a woman's voice came on the phone and identified herself. I told her I was investigating a story from a 1909 Phoenix newspaper article about the Smithsonian institutions having excavated rock-cut vaults in the Grand Canyon where Egyptian artifacts had been discovered, and whether the Smithsonian Institution could give me any more information on the subject. She said, and I quote, and that's me saying that now, but here's the quote. Well, the first thing I can tell you before we go any further is that no Egyptian artifacts of any kind have ever been found in North or South America. Therefore, I can tell you that the Smithsonian Institution has never been involved in any such excavations. She was quite helpful and polite, but in the end, knew nothing. That's text from the book. And I do want to add that we have our own person at the Smithsonian, Tess Feifel, our yeah, research coordinator. She's interning there, right? That is correct. Oh. Uh, but she's in another division. She's working on like, <laughs> rock and roll music or something. Very, very cool. But I think Part of their marketing. And, and uh, it's not the department where she would have access to that information. No, it isn't. But she yeah. did ask around and they no. were like, and her boss, I never heard anything about that. Yeah, so of course. Just That's just a little that our own very cursory glance. From the <laughs> we also are, have no interest in getting her in any kind of trouble. So. Absolutely not. Yes. But so that, that oh, that, that quote, was that the guy, David Hatcher Childress, who is the president of the World Explorers Club? Yes. Yeah, specifically, it mentions the World Explorer. It doesn't mention him by name, but it says the World Explorers Club checked it out. So it must be him. Actually, I have a web page here that lists that quote, I think. So and that is from an article by him. And, you know, he's kind of seen, I think, by uh, establishment type folks as being a kind of a loose cannon, maybe. A little bit out there. A little bit out there, but not too much. He's not tinfoil hat time. But he he does have lines of thought. I want to say two things here. Go ahead. One, I think we should put tinfoil hats into the store. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. All right. But I'm not making them. I don't have time to fold them up. All right. Uh, Two, I think it's important what that quote says, because one of the other things that we read about this 
was that there was a possible misidentification going on in terms of the origin of the artifacts. Right. And if you were to say, for example, that the artifacts were Tibetan in nature, which was actually mentioned in the article. Tibet was mentioned in the article, and we yeah. talked about the the Buddhist-like figure. Then you could theoretically, as an employee of the Smithsonian Institution, say – no Egyptian artifacts have been recovered, if there aren't any from anywhere else in the U.S. Yeah. or North America. You could say that and still be right and not necessarily <laughs> be saying that cave doesn't exist. Ah. Now, see, I know I'm getting, like, no, out no, there. No, but, no, but that's, uh, that's funny. I, I just, uh, as, we're, as we were getting uh, ready here, just read a line by Philip Coppins, great researcher, by the way, very uh, uh, astute. Interesting articles that he writes. Uh, he just passed away, I think, this last year. Uh, but what he said, though, was that th when you talk about like – I was about to suggest that we interviewed him, but – Well, there's interviews of, uh, with him that are fairly current because uh, yeah. he was working right up until he passed away. But the point he made is that in regards to this and the veracity of this 1909 story – like if you call the Smithsonian, he's basically addressing uh, any possible cover-up. Say you ask the CIA, does blank exist? The CIA responds, well, Department X here at the CIA has no knowledge about this subject and can neither confirm nor deny any knowledge of it. What that means is Department Y at the CIA <laughs> handles that yeah. immediately. So they can honestly say like, well, we don't, we don't know anything about that. But it's lying by omission is yes. what he's getting at. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there was an interesting thing, though. It, when you mentioned the confusion of the artifacts yes. and the possible origins, now, like I said, everybody has their own line of theory. Same thing with the pyramids. Everybody's got, you know, the face on Mars. Is that real? Does that tie in with your uh, belt of Orion theory and, and this and that? Everybody has a favorite line they follow. Same thing with Oak Island. Because there were tablets that are indecipherable as well as the From the cave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they look like hieroglyphics, but if you go with the original story, what's interesting is that, and again, it's a, maybe a little bit of artistic license and artistic ingenuity here with the story and that it wasn't like, oh, well, they totally, they totally figured out what these uh, hieroglyphics were because these were members of the Smithsonian and these guys were familiar with Egyptian hieroglyphics. They were indecipherable. Yes. So that, again, that either adds to a great story or... Whoever at the time could not figure them out. Well, yeah, uh, and it also goes. It also goes to the point that Egyptian experts were trying to decipher something that wasn't Egyptian. Right, right. If it, you believe no, any of this exists, no, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Uh, now, there's two books that I uh, I have actually gave Scott a set of these because they're a great reading. I will say they're so much fun. Yeah, just you to, can see them in our, in our Instagram photo. Yeah, they're 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 somewhat featured, but uh, these are actually articles that were published in a magazine called Ancient American and was founded in 1993 by publisher Wayne May. And editor Frank Joseph, what he's done is collected some of the best stories that have come through the magazine and the publication and put them into two volumes that, that I have. The earlier one, I believe, is Discovering the Mysteries of Ancient America, Lost History and Legends, Unearthed and Explored. And then the second one that Scott mentioned, Unearthing Ancient America. Well, he, he makes a good point. And the reason I'm, I'm mentioning Frank Joseph is that, you know, he is the editor of this publication. And, of course, it's more fun to believe that these kind of things exist yes. uh, than be debunking all the time. There, and there's you know. a bent. These books have a bent that favor well, the fantastic. Yeah, it, well, I mean, no, that's where they, their bread and butter is. Right. He does include, though, counterpoint articles in here right. saying that there was no interoceanic involvement. Transoceanic Pre-Columbian transoceanic migration. Wow, not too shabby, my friend. Yeah, uh, which resulting in cultural diffusion. That's another term I learned. Temporary that, experts. Yes, that is <laughs> that is as the article says, boo hooed yeah. by the establishment. 
uh, he does make a good point is that, and I'm going to read a little bit here from, from the book, which is Unearthing Ancient America. But the site, if really existed, appears to have been less Egyptian than Egyptian-like. Jordan and his fellow professionals supposedly found the hieroglyphs not difficult but impossible to read. Although the site contained mummies, they were not embalmed in the Egyptian style, but wrapped in bark fabric, like the, quote, beaded princess, unquote, entombed in an earth mound at Aztalan, the upper Mississippian ceremonial center of southern Wisconsin, or Guanche mummies found in the Canary Islands off the coast of Morocco. So what he's saying here is that it doesn't, don't get all on board with the Egypt. It's Egypt-like, and there's a mishmash. The statue, as described, sounds Tibetan. It, sound, it, looks, yes. it sounds like Buddha. Yeah. And actually, there's a picture we saw on a website, which really closely, I don't know where the guy got it, because it's in color. <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, but it may be of another deity. He, and, of course, uh, says it's from the cave. All the pictures on that website say that they're actual pictures of the artifacts and the things recovered from the cave. And we even told you that in the article, he said he stood the one mummy up and took a f- picture of it. We have not been able to find any of those photos of the artifacts in that cave. And anything that you see online is not yeah. what it says it is. No, they do it, not. It there is no similar. photographic evidence of what was recovered, right. if anything, from that cave, if you believe any of this at all. Yeah. <laughs> no, all, because all that stuff has been lost. All the samples that he supposedly collected in his first trip and that he sent to the Smithsonian. So the Smithsonian, what you're telling me now is that the Smithsonian, who is denying that this ever even happened and that any Egyptian, which I might be the caveat they need to be truthful, artifacts were ever recovered in North America and they've been no part of that, is that they lost whatever was found in Kincaid's cave. Well, that wouldn't be the first time they've lost something. Now, <laughs> Really? <laughs> again, yeah. Well, come on. Look, it's a, on the administrative side, it, it's a giant institution yeah, I can't receiving even imagine. thousands of things. Now, I, yeah, I can't find the file <laughs> for the first three podcasts. So. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm kidding. So we're, I do have them. We're, <laughs> thankfully, they're in the cloud now. Yeah. But I was going to read also something that David Hatcher Childress, I hope I'm saying that right, it's not Childress, maybe it is. That's uh, Childress. But in his book, Lost Cities and Ancient Civilizations of North America... He kind of mentions two examples here where something may have been lost, and there's people quoted who apparently worked. And I didn't look them up to see if they actually did work, nor did we bug Tess about it. But I'm just going to, like, relay these two little stories here. I just want to quickly interject that we're recording during the day this week in an effort to get the show out on time and because Forrest was available and that the landscaping team is here. <laughs> They're also available. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to keep rolling, though. So uh, we hope it doesn't bother you. Unless it gets really loud, we'll take a little break. But okay. we're just – we're going to keep going because we want to get through this in order to get it posted yes. on time. There you go. Well, all right. So Childress in his book describes an example here where the Smithsonian possibly lost something. So – Uh, I guess at the end of the 19th century in Alabama, a couple of stone coffins were dug up, discovered. And these weren't just any old stone coffins. They kind of appeared to have Near Eastern ancient origins. Where were these found? In Alabama. Okay. So apparently these were sent to the Smithsonian for analysis. And then sometime thereafter, the Smithsonian's head curator of the Department of Anthropology, F.M. Setzler, wrote regarding the coffins... We have not been able to find the specimens in our collections, though records show that they were received. So these are these are not tiny little trinkets. These are big stone coffins that somehow they misplaced because they seemed a little funky as far as origin-wise. Origin so I can't even imagine yeah. the amount of stuff coming into that place. That no, has no, to be cataloged a... and researched, <laughs> and I can't even... I don't even... Well, you there know, you go. I get overwhelmed yeah. when we have four orders from our store. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> and like, which, what size t-shirt? Did you, did which you hat? Them, yeah. Did you get them to the right place or yeah. are they going to the right people? Well, yeah, is, I did. Yeah. I, one day I shipped out 10 things and eight of them went to wrong addresses because I <laughs> shipped them to billing addresses and not shipping addresses. Or there you go. It's hard to keep stuff together. But I expect more from the Smithsonian, I will say. I expect more from me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I do, too, in the, his, 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 as far hey, as that's I'm concerned. I'm not going to make that mistake again. No, no. He's, he's, been, he's, he's pretty dutiful about that. But yeah. I will say, you know, the point is that they didn't lose Archie Bunker's chair. That's in the Smithsonian. Yeah, they've got from, that. All, from All in the Family. That's a really old show from the 70s. You and kids. the Hope Diamond. Yeah, they got all that stuff, but large stone coffins that appear to be near Eastern, Middle Eastern, I guess you you could say, coming from Alabama, and not that long ago, the end of the 19th century there, somehow go missing, and they got a record of the receipt, but they don't know where they are. You know what else systemically is interesting, and this is only just occurring to me as you're talking about this, but... They probably if if this doesn't fit into the big picture yeah. of history, the history of North America, there's probably not a whole lot of experts lying around to analyze it. Well, so, I mean, if this yeah. thing comes in and you're like, oh, this is interesting. Who can we get to look at this? And it's like, oh, we don't <laughs> really have anybody because it doesn't jibe with any pre-existing history that we've laid out. Yeah, exactly. Well, and so anyway, yeah. you shuffle it off to Warehouse 13 it, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. It goes to a Warehouse 13 type of thing. No, again, you could think maybe to suppress knowledge that they don't want to have to explain, or maybe they just don't want to deal with it. That's yeah. also a possibility. It's like, you know what? This is We don't have time for this. This no. is not fit... This does not fit in. We're not going to spend any money on this. Yeah, we well, could get the new yeah. SpaceX rocket into the air and space thing. So Yeah, exactly. Well, here's another example from the book. Now, again, this is from the book Unearthing Ancient America in the article on the Egyptian Kincave Cave. Frank Joseph. by Frank. Yes, co- uh, compiled by Frank Joseph, the editor. So during World War II, human cranial remains were accidentally bulldozed to the surface by U.S. Army engineers engaged in building an airstrip on the Alaskan island of Shemya in the Aleutians. Some of the skulls evidenced artificial head deformation as the Mayas performed on their royal infants in faraway Yucatan. The remains were carefully packaged and sent to the Smithsonian Institution, where they too were duly received and promptly lost. And then the last line of here, this paragraph finishing up, as the renowned investigator Ivan T. Sanderson asked of its directors, quote, is it that these people cannot face rewriting all the textbooks? Unquote. Look him up. He's an interesting guy. Ivan T. Sanderson, adventurer, botanist. I think he claims to be attacked by a cryptid, a prehistoric winged creature. Oh, yeah. What was that? It was like a, like a tiny pterodactyl thing. Yeah. And its name meant boat breaker or something. Yes. That sounded like a good story. Oh, that's Maybe a juicy save that one. one into okay. the file. Oh, and by the way, it's called a congomato, the boat breaker okay. of Ivan T. Sanderson from Edinburgh. Edinburgh, Scotland. Yeah, all things um, lead back to Scotland. We know our Scottish listeners have been waiting for this. I episode. know. For They've me, been for us, me on Twitter, <laughs> one of us to say <laughs> Edinburgh. Or is but uh, yeah. In any case, the question remains: stuff gets lost, but why is it done? Is it done out of malice, a wanting to maintain the status quo, as Childress says? Is it done out of just, well, we're, look, we're a big, it's a big place. We lose stuff. I'm sure it's tucked in there somewhere. Now, that does happen a lot with documents. Things are always being discovered that, uh, you know, like, well, this is groundbreaking. This was just tucked in the, uh, in the library somewhere. Nobody found it. Well, and I, I want to be clear, too, having questions about, you know, things disappearing out of malice. That is not something that I personally believe by any stretch. And I think that anyone that works for an institution as venerated as the Smithsonian they're not going to be able to bring themselves to discard intentionally anything unless it is 
truthfully deemed of absolute zero value. I just I just can't see that happening. No, I you, I, you lock it away, yeah, maybe, yeah. you know, in a secret like Dan Brown style underneath the Washington <laughs> Monument. Yeah, you don't ever discard something. Well, I I will say, look, I I would love to believe, of course, and, you do, and you tend to believe issues with real estate. How much space do you have? I don't know. Oh, you, so it just tuck it away in the cornerstone of a uh, <laughs> the National <laughs> Monument, yeah, just for oh, safekeeping. Listen to this. Tess wrote me just quickly about where the funding for the Smithsonian comes from. This is pretty interesting. She says, most of our funding comes from the government. The Board of Regents is the governing body, and it's made up of the Chief Justice, the Vice President, three members of the Senate, three representatives, and nine citizens. Congress gives us two-thirds of the budgets. Now, she works in the Enterprises branch, which is books, products, TV channel programming, magazines, which makes up the other one-third, which is not government-funded. Yeah, it's a lot of money, and I guess they earn their own money through publications and different things like that. Yes, all right. Well, in any case, you're you're right. It's it's one government association, organization, entity, body, uh, sending stuff to another, and it got lost. It's I'm not so unbelievable, but what I think is that organizations like this are directed and run and staffed by people, and people have biases, and they have things that they want to maintain, lines to toe, and I don't. You know, it's not so hard also for me to believe that. If they want to keep a direction as the way that they're going to go, and this is how things are going to progress from here on out, that that will happen, that 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 is maintained. You see it with companies as well. We have a company philosophy, a mantra, a motto, and this is how we're going to go. But it's, it, I have a little passage also from the book. Now, this concerns the mound builders and that whole idea. And that, you know, uh, I mean, evidence alone says there's 10,000 such sites in Ohio alone of these mounds and artifacts and all these tablets. And that, by the way, just want to refresh yeah. everyone's memory. They predate Native American cultures. Yeah, you're, you're talking about in the established mainstream history, we'll say the 900s and even earlier. So, And that type of Mississippian culture seems significantly different as far as their artifacts and the things that they found, the relics in these mounds. Most of them were being empty, but they have found a lot of relics, which a lot of them have gone missing. Right. And there were a lot of witnesses. There's a lot of farmers. There's The whole town comes out for this kind of thing when they find something. Now, they still have some uh, with the, that they're piecing their theories on. But again, a lot of it has gone missing. Where well, did it and, go? and this is a huge thing that you actually bring up. It's only just now occurring to me is that humanity itself is – everyone is a relic hunter. When people yeah. go places, they take things. That's why, it, again, in the Southwest, when you go to the ghost towns or you go wherever, there's a lot of times if it's on BLM land, Bureau of Land Management land, there's, there's signs or there's postings or you just need to know you are not supposed to take anything from that site right. anywhere. Right. And then there's all, there's even lore and superstition about yeah. if you take something, <laughs> bad things will happen you to you. You take something home. Look at the Brady Bunch. And I'll tell you what. I took a piece of the Silver Bridge, which is the bridge Ooh. that collapsed in uh, Point Pleasant yeah. in 1967 uh, surrounding the whole Mothman thing. And right. I did have a bad couple of years while I had that. I eventually, really? I discarded that stone. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, you don't, you don't, you generally don't want to mess with stuff. Uh, just, you know, out of respect as well as Well, if everyone pursuits. takes it, especially as big as the country's gotten and everyone's traveling and going and trying to find all these remote things and people are geocaching and uh, legend tripping and doing that sort of thing and they get to these really famous sites. If everybody takes a little something, oh, it's just – I'm going to take this little thing home. Eventually, there's nothing left for anybody else to see. Well, exactly. That's why you don't take pebbles from the Great Wall. Soon it'll be a great fence. There you go. Yeah. Or something smaller. But that's the idea. Now, the reason that we're kind of treading lightly here around the whole mound building idea is that the legend goes that this was purportedly a European 
or should we say Caucasian looking race. Mm-hmm. Predating the Native Americans that are that were there then in the right. plains. So now we're getting into a whole it's, other agenda. Well, oh no! Look, look, wait, look. The white people were here before that. Yeah, yeah I know. Gets, so people get people get very upset, in it, and yeah. rightfully so. It's again, it's it's their legacy, it's their culture, it's their history that you you potentially mess with. So, but that is one line of well, thinking. clearly they didn't survive. So I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? If they uh, were or here they at bl- all. or like the Anasazi, like you said, they just blended out into the rest of the uh, population that was there, or. Yeah. soon to arrive Blended but that out. is the but that is the cultural diffusion yes but that is the big idea that is some would say being repulsed by the establishment of academia currently in place now the point i'm going to make here is i'm going to read another passage now again there's probably a little bit of maybe some offensive ideas here but this is what we're stating as one of the theories behind what's been found now, I'm going to be reading here from Discovering the Mysteries of Ancient America, and this is, again, another edited volume here from Frank Joseph. And this is kind of what the passage sums up here and makes a point about that I want to relay about the mound builders' theory. Yet today, very few archaeologists believe that the mound builders belong to a lost white race. What brought about this reinterpretation? According to historian John Baldwin, quote, it is rather interesting to consider the circumstances that led to the abandonment of this theory as a myth. The fact is that by 1890 the tide of opinion had shifted, and men of science denied that there had ever been a highly cultured white race in America's past. This very radical turnabout came as a result of the scientific leadership of one man, Mr. John Wesley Powell." Unquote. So okay. now here, okay, so that's here we mentioned him before, very legendary guy. Yeah. I'm going to read another passage that kind of shows the background here and something he said. And I'm reading from the book here. In 1879, when Congress created the Smithsonian Institution's Bureau of Ethology, Major Powell, a Civil War hero, received additional power and prestige as the Bureau's first director. He was disposed to think that the mound builders were the ancestors of the Native Americans and presented his theory as dogma in the Bureau's first annual report, published in 1880. Quote, The vestiges of art discovered do not excel in any respect the arts of the Indian tribes known to history. There is, therefore, no reason for us to search for an extra-limited origin through lost tribes for the arts discovered in the mounds of North America, unquote. So kind of what he's saying is, nothing to see here, let's move along. Yeah. And what I'm getting at is that my point of view is like, I know you don't see these as being of anything special, but let's research them anyway. Right. Let's Let's figure out what's at the bottom of this, rather than you just saying like, I don't think these are that important. Right. That's the summation that I'm getting. So, Which is sort of classic confirmation bias, strongly aligning towards your point of view and, and then derailing any exploration in any other direction. Right. Now, this is coming from a very prestigious, famous guy, very well respected and, you know, and a qualified scientific mind of his time. Yeah. But he has an opinion and that opinion is let's move on yeah. and let's not explore this and it set the tone from there on out. Now, again, that'll be debated by some. I certainly love the Smithsonian and what they've done so far. But I do believe that a lot of organizations have... What they've done so far. So far. Just like in the past hundred years. (laughs) Not that that long. No, like there's still a chance for them to make a mistake. Yeah, possibly. What they've done so far. I love that. It's like a qualifier. What if you found that uh, warehouse? Like, hey, what about this crap? Yeah. There's a UFO in here. Yeah. Yeah. Hangar 13. Yeah. Anyways. That's Hangar uh, 18, I think. Is it? 
Hangar 18. Oh, there you're right. UFOs. Yes. I'm sorry. So this should all be uh, eliminated. Mm-hmm. In any case, what we're saying is that a academic line has been drawn and it's been followed, I think. And anything that goes outside of that is not really considered. Now, I, I don't know if I mentioned this yet in this episode, but I have in past ones where I know somebody, a friend of a friend, who was going for her archaeology degree, her PhD, and was about to write her paper. I said, well, that's a monumental task. That's got to be a lot of research. She goes, well, you know, the, one of the biggest things that's most difficult is that you have to pick a side. And I'm like, what do you mean pick a side? She said, when you present your theory, that's going to put you into a camp of one group versus the other and what they believe, what their interpretation is. Now, her field was such that there are differing opinions on the interpretations of hieroglyphics found, and they don't all agree. So our point that we made earlier is that even in the highest levels of academia, they don't agree. Right. And, they, and, the, and it's hostile. And that's the point she was making, is that it gets very hostile. They, they will shut you down if you're not in their camp. So anyway, that's my point. There are lines that need to be towed. Yes. And uh, yeah, and, and they, sides every, need to be chosen. Everyone yeah. needs to say, this is the way it is. And they say that it's kind of like our whole thing with all the different episodes we've done. And when some when the guy comes out and he goes, I've solved it. It's like, <laughs> that guy is the guy you probably might yeah. want to trust the least. That's my first big red flag. <laughs> Mystery solved. Mystery solved. Yeah. We figured it out. And, yeah. and to that end, you can also say that about this is a hoax. Yeah. In a lot of cases, some are. Some maybe, yeah, it's obviously a hoax. Right. It's kind of only obviously a hoax if you have people on video doing it, like whether it's the <laughs> crop circles or yeah. whatever. You can't really know without witnesses yeah. and scientific or forensic evidence. You can't even believe the people that come out and say they did it as a hoax because a lot of times they're just claiming that to gain a little bit of notoriety for you themselves. You can get just as famous saying that you hoax something as yeah. you did by actually doing the hoax. Right. Coming back around, I want to talk about, you know, before we wrap this show up, I do want to talk a little bit about the geography of the location of the Kincaid Cave. One of the things that you'll see if you look online, you're going to see a billion pictures of a hole in the side of a cliff in the Grand Canyon. And it's very intriguing. It looks really amazing. That hole is not the Kincaid Cave. That is the Stanton Cave. (laughs) Ah. There are no pictures, I want to make this clear, of this cave or any of the artifacts in it that are verifiable. And even on the blogs, we're like, here are the artifacts that were found. There are Egyptian, there is, there's nothing. Yeah. There's lots of people that say they have them, but they don't have them. And when you talk about if it was Kincaid who wrote the article or whoever wrote the article, which is the next thing we're going to come to, when you talk about their definition of where it existed geographically in the cliffside, 1400 and was 86, almost uh, 1500 feet down from the top, but still it was several hundred feet above the river level, I believe. Yeah. Because again, picture this. There's about 30 yards of steps from the very edge of the cliff that's that are set back that actually go to the entrance right. of this cave. Yeah, the, which re- refresher for people, you cannot see the cave from the river level. No. You, you can see the ledge. What, what Kincaid said he first saw were the stains on the ledge that led him to explore. And when he got to the ledge and he crested it, that's when he saw the entrance to the cave. Right. You're, and you were supposing that he has some geologic knowledge that uh, he's maybe even done a little mining. A lot of people did. Lewiston's a big – It's well, Idaho's the gem state, so yes. a lot of people did mining there. But And in the article when he said he was searching for mineral, that was considered a term for looking for gold, actually. He's looking for anything that's unusual looking, and that's what he found on the side of the cave wall, some staining, mineral staining. So something up there is causing that. So that's what causes him – to dock his boat. The other realization is that since the steps end so high up, either the river was way high 
or it had cut a channel much deeper since that time that it had been occupied. Which brings me to my next point. Here's the issue with that. The difference between where the river level would have been for the access to the cave as described by G.E. Kincaid and where it was in 1909 and even today would have been a difference if you go by the slow erosion of the Grand Canyon at the hands of the Colorado River of a time period of 10,000 to possibly millions of years. Yeah. All right. So a couple things about that. (laughs) Artifacts millions of years old are dust. There's probably not going to be anything in there if you you were even going to go down that road of saying humanity was in there. Let's say it was 10,000 years or many thousands of years. You're still – you're having all kinds of issues with preexisting science and thought. There are folks that suggest that the Grand Canyon was formed, and I don't know – I shouldn't even bring this up because I don't – I did not look into whether or not this is a realistic proposition. Yeah. That it was more or less formed in the second part of its of its formation by a cataclysmic event, such as the draining of a giant lake. Exactly, yes. That flooded it down. So in theory, this cave, maybe it's not that old if it exists. Right. It's right. not that old and that the river's ability to drill down further into the canyon was the result – of a cataclysmic flood that lasted for quite some time as, yeah. a, as a lake was drained or something right. like that. And that would explain why you could have possibly had humans in this cave that would have existed in a more reasonable time than as opposed to running around with dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, hey, supposedly one of the tablets said there was a prehistoric type uh, animal drawing of only two animal drawings in there. Yeah, but you can, uh, you can draw yeah. what – I mean, if you find a dinosaur bone, you can draw a dinosaur. Right. So what, what you don't have suppo- to be there with it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you find a skeleton, I'm saying. Yeah, ex- well, exactly. But what you have to imagine here is that uh, the water level is coming up to the steps, then leading to the cave to make it easy. Like you dock your boat, you take the steps up, you're in the cave, rather than making an arduous climb with ropes <laughs> yeah. to get up to this thing. There are varying theories as to what may have happened to cause this dramatic change, if this thing does exist, in the water level between now and maybe 10,000 years ago. If you get really crazy, and, and uh, some folks out there, I, I think we got an iTunes comment that you should let me loose and I should get really fringy. So we'll, we'll visit that in a <laughs> oh, second. Oh, that's what I'm supposed to do? Apparently, cut yes. You loose? Well, well you the show. The show should be cut loose and I should be uh, ter- uh, turned You should be let off crazy. your chain. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll encapsulate that in a little later, probably in another another side thing. Don't want to do it here. <laughs> hey, I am not Forrest Keeper. Well, I guess I am a little bit. I can edit him. He does. He, yes, he does. He has that power and he does give me some good direction here to to keep me reined in. But what we're saying here is there, if you want to get really fringy, there's theories out there that possibly Atlanteans, earlier races from Asia and the Near East have come here previously. And it's not just white Europeans either. Keep that in mind. There's one theory proposed by Zechariah Sitchin who got this from, you ever heard of Gordo Cooper, Gordon Cooper, the astronaut? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, one of the crew members of the Mercury 7 project In his book, A Leap of Faith, he mentions going on a deep-sea archaeological expedition, and there's some interesting things found in the Olmec tradition of ancient Mexico. There are some artifacts that look West African. Yes, with the Olmecs, specifically. yeah, Clearly West African. So again, it's not just white guys showing up here in uh, in spaceships and boats and whatnot. Right. There's a lot of, of other different types of folks from the other half of the hemisphere coming to the Americas 
way before Columbus. That is one thing I will go out on a limb and say is I do believe that uh, he was not the first dude here. Yeah, I'm White with you guy on that. here, yes. So, so when anyway, take a look, yeah. by the way, at the Roman sword that was just found eh, off Oak Island, Oak which Island. I, I guess they talked about last night. I haven't seen that episode yeah. yet. I recorded it. but uh, There's all Roman artifacts found in Utah. Yeah. So you go through all these books, and there's tons of stuff that is just – it seems out of place. Yeah. And it seems anomalous. So, But it only seems anomalous because it doesn't jibe with what – the past however many generations of people who were educated in the United States were taught. It is not necessarily anomalous if you are open-minded to the fact that Columbus wasn't the first guy here, that time in in North America doesn't start when Columbus got here, or necessarily maybe even when Native American tribes were flourishing. It could have been prior to that. People have said when things are starting and stopping with erroneous information. Yeah. Well, you know what you know now so far, but there are things that are constantly being discovered. You know, I think the current theory is that the Native American tribes that are here now, about 10,000 years ago, came over on the Aleutian land bridge from Asia and Siberia. Well, that makes sense. You can see on the globe where that makes a little land bridge, the waters rose, that went away. There was a mini ice age around the 800s, 900s to 1000 AD. Geological processes have happened within a relatively short period of uh, geologic history. There was a giant Lake Kalispell up in in the Montana area was a massive, massive lake when its boundaries were burst and it changed the geography. We're talking about boulders the size of uh, buildings here being tossed around willy-nilly. So this thing was massive. There's a great uh, uh, documentary. When did that happen? Yeah, I feel like I've heard about this. There, there's a great documentary. I can't say It wasn't when. modern times, but it wasn't no, no, too no, no. long yeah. ago. Yeah. No, no, but, but it, it was, was... – I would say within the last thirty or 40,000 years. Yeah. And certainly there have been humans on the planet, we think, that long. But Well, the and that, by the way, brings me to another point. There's a film that I want to mention just quickly to our listeners, which I think I've probably brought up in a few earlier episodes of the show. It's called The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Ah. Actually, not The Cave, just yeah. Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which I actually saw in the theater with our friend Marty, who we interviewed early on on the That's Queen right. Mary show. It's a Werner Herzog movie, which in itself is always very entertaining, and for no other reason <laughs> than his narration is, is so great. His narration is yeah. mind-blowing. This, though, is a story about a cave that was found. It's called the Chauvet Cave. And it was found in southern France. I, I can't remember what year it was found, but the f- the movie came out in about 2010. But it was – I can't – the guys were looking – some people were just walking around and they felt a, some cold air and they figured out that there was this cave that you couldn't get into. And once they got in there, once once people got in there, they realized that it was this perfect, undisturbed cave that had not been entered by mankind – or disturbed in any way for 32,000 years. Wow. Yeah. And it has artwork of these horses on the wall that were drawn by whoever the last people in there were that is just beautiful, stunning artwork, just really beautiful stuff. But anyway, it's an amazing film. And the reason I bring it up is because we're talking about caves, and in talking about caves, we can't go away from this story without getting around to the last possibility about its origin, and that is the possibility that was authored by a man named Joseph Mulhattan. Yes, which or oddly, someone trying to emulate him. Yeah, that, no, that's a great that's a great point. But what a great character that we've stumbled across here, which is oddly though has no Wikipedia entry. This guy is unbelievable. I am 
truly impressed with him. I feel like he would have been a lot of fun to hang out with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He is a real person. He's he's verified to have existed. And he was actually called by some people Munchausen Mulhattan because yeah. <laughs> he was able to craft these really unbelievable stories and get them published in newspapers all over the country. Oh, by the yeah. way, just to correct, I looked it up. It could be Lake Missoula. I've, oh, okay. I, I don't want to. Yeah, no, I'm I trying to try to Fact be Fact checking on the fly. Yeah, I just, it didn't sound right. Anyway, my point was, things happen. Yes. <laughs> Geologically. Happen. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's all right. Yeah. I'm not going to. I'm going to leave all that in in its glorious nonlinear order. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're going to have to. No, he doesn't have to. I'll just sound mistaken. But yeah. So getting back to Mulhattan, I have to read some quotes about him here. Mulhattan himself claimed his hoaxes were a journalistic innovation, which he called novelistic journalism. He compared planting a false story in a newspaper to writing a novel in a thousand words. But he boasted that his novels were read by a million people 10 hours after he had written him. He said in an 1883 interview, quote, nobody is hurt by my little novels. Nobody's morals are corrupted and all are entertained and sometimes instructed. And that's from the hoaxes.org website, actually, which you mentioned to they me have off, a, off the air earlier. Yes. It's a really great website. They have a good uh, entry on him specifically, which that article that we mentioned earlier by Don Lago looks, uh, quote, looks like a mount. Don Lago. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I am Don Lago, and I am here to kill you. Uh, looks like a Mulhattan story. It was in the Grand Canyon uh, Historical Society's w- newsletter. It is far and away the best counterpoint article on the idea of this being a hoax. Although, as Forrest says, it gets kind of heavily debunky at the end. Eh, it, it has a lot of good yeah. data in it. It's very well written. We have a link to it. It's If you're interested in the story, you should absolutely read it. It's definitely worth reading, and I will say that the Mulhattan, he brings that to light, and he kind of makes that the large pivot point of the story there for being most likely a hoax. That is the uh, the main thrust of his argument there, is that it sounds like a Mulhattan story of the kind that he was putting out around that time. Now, he had some other whoppers that he got famous for. Yes. Uh, which <laughs> George Washington's corpse becoming petrified yes. on exhumation. That had been discovered petrified, and then it would be placed on display. And then also, and this is important, yeah. in 1878, after moving to Kentucky, he wrote about the discovery of an enormous 14-mile-long cave in Glasgow Junction through which a wide river flowed. Again, I'm quoting uh, hoaxes.org here. An entrepreneur was said to be constructing a steamboat to offer underground rides along this river. And let's not forget the balloon story. He he, he got some (laughs) stories, but then now this was April Fool's Day. I will say this. And by the way, the first piece in the Arizona Gazette, the lead-up piece, was April 5th. It was April 5th, and Don Lago makes – I'm just going to say the full name because I love it so much. Yeah. Uh, Don Lago says that the, the paper wasn't putting out an issue prior to that. I think it was close to the weekend. Basically, he said, well, that falls within April Fool's territory there, so yeah. possibly it could be. However, what's the joke if you don't come back and later saying like, well, that was an April Fool's joke. You just kind of let it sit out there. Now, A lot of people let April Fool's yeah. jokes sit. Well, no, and, and that's what Don's point was. Like back then, uh, journalism – realistic and reliable 
honest journalism was still kind of in its infancy. Well, this was the heyday of yellow journalism. Right. There were there were wars going on between Spanish American War. No, that's not oh, the war. So that... <laughs> well, no that that led up to the that led up to a, a fueling one side of it. Sure. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, but I was specifically talking about the war between Pulitzer's New York World and Randolph Hearst's uh, New York Journal. I'm talking about the journalism wars during which they were trying to, so hard to increase circulation that they got sort of National Enquirer esque. Yeah. Just yes. whatever headline they could yeah. get. And this rose uh, to the expression yellow journalism, which had to do with the color of the uh, paper they were using at the yeah. time. But in that was in its heyday at this exact period. So right. – and Manhattan was famous and he was known for these hoaxes and there was more – there wasn't just the Glasgow cave. There was a couple of other cave stories. There was a little girl that tied a bunch of balloons to her and it, uh, she went up in the air and a hunter shot her down or something. <laughs> I think it was a party. She tied a bunch of balloons. Yes. Not to, be, not to be confused with Lawn Chair Larry who actually ah. got pretty high. Yeah. And what was that? It was the 80s, I think. No, I looked that up. Uh, that what was, was uh, July 2nd, 1982, hey. in a homemade airship <laughs> dubbed Inspiration One. It was a launch. The flying machine. Yeah, he just tied, he got a bunch of weather balloons. Yeah. No, the point was. By the way, his quote, my favorite yeah. is his quote, which I believe his famous quote is A man can't just sit around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which he did not. He rose to an altitude of over fifteen thousand feet. Now he's and that's now three he's miles, a, people. That's yeah, three miles. Yeah, he's in airspace here, uh, you know, airliner airspace, and he had to kind of communicate with him, like, yeah, could you just tell him I'm okay? Like, yeah, <laughs> sorry about this. I don't think he expected it to work that well. My point being, he is had that a BB gun, right? He was shooting his own. He balloons. had an he had an he had an <laughs> air gun, and uh, he dropped he, he shot a couple because he's realizing like, okay, this has got to stop. This is yeah. getting crazy. So he shot a couple, but then he dropped the air gun. So now he's just at the good graces of the winds, prevailing winds, and he gets hooked up in some uh, some wires. It caused a blackout in San Pedro, California, <laughs> I think, for a little while. Uh, no, the point was Dropped make, the air. Now, yeah. talk about a good reason to have a leash on something. Well, you, yes, you have the you know the old uh, uh, Michael Caine. You've got the lanyard, uh, the white cord that like goes maybe. from your uh, your Webley pistol there, so you don't drop it in battle. Yeah. No, the point is that that sounds crazy. But it happened. Yes. I mean, not with a little girl, certainly, but with a guy with a lawn chair, you bet. And uh, that did happen. And then there was the little boy who supposedly was in that one balloon a few years ago. Ah, uh, the balloon uh, boy. Balloon yes. boy, which I took one look at it. And I was like, that could not raise a person off Exactly. The so, so <laughs> well, the, okay. I was like, like, I don't know why everyone's yeah. believing this. But you're making a good point here, Scott, in that we as rational adults and, and trying to be very non-biased and open-minded will hear something that makes sense. You can go with it. Yeah. I'll entertain this idea. Now, it's like we talked about this a little earlier. Uh, the guy, I think he was a German guy online or maybe from Scandinavia. His YouTube video went viral because he created this flying machine out of fabric and mechanics. Like Capital. a flapping. Yeah, yeah. Like Brewster McCloud fashion. Yeah. Maybe I've mentioned him before, but like, yeah, yeah Bud Court, he makes this uh, flying machine that he's able to use human power and we just know, like, nah. It's not going to work. No, a form of propulsion that's extra outside of your yourself, like a jet propulsion of some kind, sure. But not from you and your human power that's been tried for millennia and it doesn't work. You yeah. cannot generate enough lift to get the weight of a human body off the ground. Right. So with these Mulhattan stories, like, they're preposterous. For example, the, the Crystal Cave story he claimed that you could take a team of horses and, and ride 11 miles into this cave, that there's flowing rivers. Wait, was it called the Crystal Cave? Yeah, the name of the hoax, or the, the article, was the Grand Crystal Cave beneath Glasgow Junction, Kentucky, a cave which was wonderful beyond description, quote-unquote, Okay, and far surpasses grandeur, the mammoth cave nearby. 
Listen, I just want to quickly say, and yeah. this has only just now occurred to me, even though we've been reading about this for two weeks <laughs> yeah. or three, the fact that that is called the Crystal Cave and that the reference point for the Kincaid Cave is El Tovar Crystal Canyon. Yeah. Oh, you, that's been that's been made in one crystal. Uh, I didn't read it anywhere, yeah. so I'm just saying crystal. No, the, crystal. There's a lot of connections. It, well, no, no. Look, the, the lot of also in um, Lago. Don Lago talks about this. I think, but the possible yeah. inspirations for Professor S. A. Jordan, his name, who that might have been, and also the Kincaid, the mounds that we've been referring to all through the show in Ohio are called the Kincaid Mounds, are they not? Those are the ones that are in Ohio. However, yeah. those were not discovered until the mid twenties. Oh, okay. Uh, now there's a thing here about so that was way, that was way after. No, and there's fair. tons. Look, it, it, it's all weird because I mean, there's a lot of good connections there. A lot of the names that uh, where they think we're talking Kincaid Cave, the, is. the Kincaid Cave, and I guess what Childress apparently says in his book was that he was shocked to see that a lot of the the names around the area where they thought they think maybe some folks think maybe the cave is the Kincaid Cave have Egyptian names. And he says the area around 94 Mile Creek and Trinity Creek had areas, rock formations apparently, uh, with names like the Tower of Set, the Tower of Ra, Horus Temple, Osiris Temple, Isis Temple. There's also Buddhist names, Buddha Cloister, Buddha Temple. Hmm. And so a lot of people say, you know, I think in the, even in the article says, well, you know, the Egyptian Egyptology was very popular at the time. Right. But I would make the case in 1908, wh- where that really kind of hit the mainstream zeitgeist, as you like to say. And I also I love to hear it. Yeah. Is that most of that with the common folk who weren't academics really hit in uh, 1922 when Howard Carter and Lord Carnivorn, Carnivore. <laughs> Carnivore, Lord yeah. Carnivon, the fifth Earl of uh, Carnivon, discovered uh, Tutankhamun's tomb in Egypt. Right, so that was later. That was 22, right. And that's so when that's... we started building the Egyptian theater and Hollywood and all that yeah, kind of stuff. that's when like... it kind of really got popular. Now, certainly so people didn't know So you can't necessarily say that that part, that, that thing in the zeitgeist was influencing when this, in 1909, when this story came out, it wasn't really a big part of pop culture yet. No, it wasn't, but but it was happening. It's very unusual, and certainly when people name things, they're usually named for the people who discovered it or somebody nearby or the Native Americans who lived around in the area and and their names for different things. But in the mound area in the Midwest there, there's also a lot of Egyptian-sounding names. It's just all very strange. Anyway, I think what he's the, the point he was making is that, yes, this, this was floating around, these Egyptian kind of ideas of finding mummies and opening caves, making these discoveries, archaeological discoveries, was swirling around at the time. And it certainly was. But I think in this area, I don't think anyone had really associated it with the Grand Canyon yet. And like with El Tovar and the Crystal Cave and all that, there are some strange connections. And those, those have to be investigated, but there's very little to go on. There's so nothing to, to go yeah. on. Right, but the right. article and everyone's subsequent analysis of the article, which almost all of our research for this episode was based on. Now, we yeah. did – Tess did direct us to an article that was fascinating, suggesting that some Egyptian mummies in Egypt right. had been discovered to have contained materials ah, in their bodies. Coca. Yeah. yeah. Uh, cocaine as well as um, um, nicotine. Yeah. And stomach linings. Tobacco. And this is, again, talk about yeah. pick a side. This is a hugely – Sure. We have a link for this uh, this particular piece in the show notes for this story, but it's a hugely controversial issue where people right. are like, you're absolutely ridiculous. And other people are saying, oh, here we go again with the pre-Columbian trans-oceanic yeah. migrations. Did, not necessarily did they come over to get 
nicotine, but right. that the the nicotine maybe was brought to them, or one person went and brought it back, or they farmed it, and then it went extinct there because it was extinct there. Yeah, it and could be traded because what then did these— Who did traded the, it? Who yeah. were they trading with? Did the Central Americans or North American settlers, did they venture forth eastward and to trade? And how did it get there? So these are—and again, these are you can, you can tell that by a chapel in Scotland. Why does it look like there's corn kernels and uh, the trillium flower? And when those are North American items— Yeah. And the, the chapel was built before Columbus arrived. So yes. how did that get there? Anyway, it, there's a lot of questions. Everything like leads that. back to Scotland. <laughs> That's for our Scottish. We listeners. gotta go. Oh my! Uh, <laughs> just for the the the, the stout alone. We're expecting us yeah. carte blanche when we get there. Buddy. Exactly, folks. You better uh, you better <laughs> show us around. Okay, so here wrapping up. These are my final thoughts on. Manhattan, because I think that may be the strongest case of this being a hoax. The, again, Mr. Don Lago was able to tie in very concisely and make some strong points. And we want to make clear, I yeah. think even with Don Lago, that he's not necessarily saying, at least I don't know if he is, but I'm not yeah. saying personally, that it was necessarily Manhattan as much as it could have been Manhattan himself or uh, someone inspired by Manhattan. Exactly. And and he brings up both points. He He makes a strong case for both being the case, but... This is my thinking on it. The title of it is uh, of his piece, and and what a, 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 another newspaper, a rival newspaper to the Gazette said at the time, sounds like a Manhattan story. Well, you know what? To me, the theme, yes. The actual story, no. It does not sound like a like one of his other stories. His other stories were fantastical, and I, and I suggest this reading story is fantastical, though. When you say not in that, the same way. No, no, let me point. Let me make a point here. He never admitted he, he wrote. He made up this story about the Kincaid Cave. And Professor S.A. Jordan and all that. It was never tied to him. It just sounded like something that he would report. But when you look at the types of stories, I mean, I'm talking about the actual writing. He prided himself in this, and he and he was he was open about the stories. He no, had no, done. he yeah, he, uh, he he admitted. Look, he says, and I'm quoting now from Don Lago's article. Yet Manhattan enjoyed his cave hoaxes the most. In 1883, he told an interviewer, I am prouder of my Glasgow cave story than any of the others. It showed more invention and more imagination. So cave hoaxes, yeah, that's his thing. But take a look at the wording that he uses. The, again, when I'm saying the fantastical, okay, he's talking about a team of horses being driven 11 miles into this thing. Rooms full of magnificent jewels, long halls lined with great blocks of virgin gold and of subterranean rivers rippling over beds of diamonds. Yeah. These are big stories. I mean, yes, and to your point, yeah. he's not. there's not a lot of specifics with regard to scientific descriptions of the artifacts in the other stories, like there are in the story. No, and and, and but yeah. again, what if it's a different writer? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's okay. Who's a look? Who's inspired, but has a different bent? Maybe it, some it, scientific background. Exactly. Now breaking this down. Okay, and also at this time, unfortunately, Mr. Mulhattan, Joe. Became a terrible alcoholic, and yes. he was in very poor health. I don't think in he fact, came. I think he was pretty much his whole life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It caught up with him, let's say, around yeah. this time. So in 1909, he would have been in really bad shape. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah, at one point that he was found like in a gutter, they thought he was dead. And <laughs> he was raining outside. Just that he was drunk. Yeah, he was yeah. just really drunk, and then he ended up in several uh, sanatoriums and, and, uh, and uh, inebriation tanks. I think he's a tortured genius. Yeah, no, that's the thing. He said that great he, writer. Everyone, everyone said that he was a really nice guy. His heart yeah. was in the right place. He never swindled anybody, never intended to. He just got pleasure out of hoaxing newspapers and entertaining people, which is that's what the point of the stories are, is that they're fantastical in their descriptions. Uh, just about the mummies. It's uh, 
Yeah, even you know, even the way he describes them, three of the mum and this is the Crystal Cave story, three of the mummies were male and three female. The female mummies had a fine, intelligent, refined cast. Beautiful even thousands of years after the visit of the destroying angel. So my point here is when you hear the description of Kincaid's cave, to me, that sounds more actually, and again, this might point to the genius of the <laughs> well, as much as you can say genius, of the original article and whoever wrote it, it sounds to me like a regular discovery of something actually archaeological, because the mummies are bark-wrapped. They're all male. There's broken swords. There's no glittering diamonds. There are some elements of gold and copper that's been uh, smelted and hammered in in a fine fashion, but no mounds of gold. This is no huge treasure room. That was the one thing that I I had uh, mistakenly believed over the years hearing the stories. I thought they were were treasure rooms, and I'm talking national treasure-type treasure rooms. No, that's not the case. Most of the rooms were empty. The way it's described... Sounds like it, it was less fantastical than Tutankhamun's tomb. Right, and I think we've also made it clear that it could be stated that it was largely misidentified as Egyptian, which in a way, or possibly largely misidentified as an Egyptian, which in a way makes it more believable, frankly. To well, me. exactly. No, that's that's one good thing, and I, I can't remember again if I if, if it's I just another culture, a, a lost culture, an unknown culture, or a culture that is not quite so far fetched as an Egyptian culture being here, then the story becomes more believable, and, yeah. and the misidentification becomes plausible. You know, this kind of archaeology is still in its formative stages at that time. Right. As you said, this was before Tutankhamun was even discovered. Yeah, that's that's what I'm going back to Frank Joseph saying it's Egyptian like, and th- there is a there is a deity there that's carved that looks like Buddha, uh, but it's not even you know I would I would imagine Manhattan like gleaming glistening gold and eyes of emeralds and yeah. all this kind of stuff yeah because that's the way he wrote El Dorado yeah, El Dorado so and and as Don Lago says if this might be the dying uh, last hurrah of a fantasy writer, it doesn't sound very much, there's a lot, there's a lot it's lacking in hurrah for and, me. Yeah. But one thing and that Frank... And written from a gutter. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. By the way, I'm not making fun of I no, have no, actually no. tremendous it's, respect for him. Once I learned about him, I'm a huge fan. Well, you know why? Because the writing is good. Yeah. And he took time with it. And, you know, his heart You should heart just go and dig up place. all his stories. Yes. Go, we'll, we'll have a link to the, uh, the hoaxes that he purported. Yeah. Again, this is not one of them. And no one's ever been able to link him to that. It just seems likely that it's something like he may have written. No, and you're and you're right. You know, it's, his articles do sound a lot like he's just you know writing about the inside of the chocolate factory. Right. <laughs> exactly. Charlie and the Rivers chocolate. of chocolate. Yeah. No. And then one other point, though, I want to make finishing up here about the statue that was found is that it's Buddha-like. But Frank Joseph makes a good point, and the way it's described sounds more reminiscent of the Nile Valley deity Bess portrayed in Egyptian temple art as an Asiatic dwarf similarly holding a lotus in each hand. Bess was the divine patron of war, appropriately enough, given the weapons found in the profusion of the Colorado River site. So the flowers he held signified the saving of life through self-defense. And again, the, what it was made out of, as described, was marble-like. So whoever, if, whoever wrote this, again, if it's fake, like, good, good way of toning it down, man. Just, you know, keeping it, keeping it not too crazy, where it's like, it's not gleaming gold. It's just, it's marble-like. And there was, you know, metals that were, some were precious, but not all of them. Yeah. So in conclusion, I don't think that Mulhattan himself wrote it. I just don't think that that was possible. It doesn't sound like the type of story he wrote. However, I do think it's possible that someone from the paper wrote it for all the reasons that we stated earlier, mostly to entertain people and sell newspapers. And is it true or not? 
I don't know, but like you, I, I would like it to be true. It's time to wrap up. But before we finish this yeah. one out, I do want to say one thing that we left out and hadn't mentioned was the discussion that there are people who had discovered the cave. And I believe ah. they've implied that it was some of these caves were either collapsed or closed up or they had bars installed. And Grand Canyon National Park maintains that caves with bars in front of them are done to protect the bat population. Right, right. Which I believe is plausible. <laughs> Even but, Don Lago, though, says that, that he makes it sound like that's a little ridiculous. It, but, I get, yeah. it does, but I can see a, a national park just because I know a yeah. little bit about sure, that culture. Sure. I could see them doing that. On the other hand, the fact that these caves may have been blocked up or impossible to get in and out of now right. is, is intriguing. Oh, yeah. Well, no, and that's that's a trend. Again, I'm not taking a side here. I'm just saying that from what I know, having grown up in the West, a lot of people are upset with the National Park Service, which has a hand in this, in that their line to toe is that it seems more exclusionary, like they're keeping you out of stuff. And I know Yeah, that- and this is government land. There's no question that sure, if sure. you go from what we think is El Tovar Crystal Canyon and you go north 42 miles or whatever he said it was, right. uh, whoever wrote that article, yeah. you are in BLM land. Right, right. Well, that's the thing. In the Northwest... There are a lot of people who are upset because uh, the Park Service has gone around and torn down a lot of these old miners' cabins and historical homesteads because they claim it's an, it's an eyesore, which, you know, I, I could see the argument for that, and they're, they're possibly dangerous. But you're also kind of like scrubbing a little bit of the history off the land yeah. and that these people, the, you know, pioneer folks came in here uh, when no one else was here and had a little homestead going. You know, it's like you like to tool around ghost towns occasionally, as, sure. as I do. And I'm glad those aren't gone. But, you know, those are, those are much more established. And, and, yeah, they're kind of an eyesore. But anyway, so, yes, there are forces here at work. Some believe that are keeping people away from the truth. Then again, other than Jack Andrews in this article here online, which, which we'll link to, who says he's may have, he may have discovered the location. Yeah, that is a fascinating article. He's yeah. got a lot of uh, real specific information and says he found it. Yeah. But – I, who knows? Who knows? Who, who knows? But he doesn't I, have photos. No, no. <laughs> uh, but he's got little uh, map drawings here, which are – it's just interesting. And anyway, so t- for me, in conclusion here, I don't know if it's real. Again, I say this with everything. I think it may be possible. I don't see – I'm not such a uh, – taken to such a line that I don't think there could be any interaction that's pre-Columbian. I think why not? That makes sense. These people. I don't even know what that means. I learned pre-Columbus, right? Oh, yeah, pre-Columbian. There you go. Pre-Columbus, pre-arriving, fourteen ninety-two. God, I'm Uh, definitely going to have to delete that. That was the dumbest thing I've said in (laughs) twenty-nine episodes. I can assure you, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) I let those go. We'll let the audience decide Uh, that. Yeah, I was doing that for people in the audience. I just didn't want anybody to feel dumb. No, no. I certainly think I'm. I'm amazed constantly. Like I'll read something like you and I I do. It's like what I didn't know that. Like everyone knows that. Bedrock. Okay. Oh, yeah. I think I felt like it should be pre-Columbusian. <laughs> yeah, Columbus-y. But the point we're getting at is that there's so – my point anyway, there are so many things that don't make sense that certain establishments don't really want to look into. And I don't know why. I don't know if they want to rewrite all these textbooks, but I just they know that – They don't care about rewriting it. Stop saying that. Nobody cares about that. <laughs> no, no, that's often – the, the book, you make money. Yeah, that's often the uh, the case, There's though. something else, yeah. something more to it's, it it's, than just right. that. It, 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 and a lot of it's very controversial. But I think like many of the stories we've shared on Astonishing Legends – This is one that deserves to be looked into a little further. (laughs) 
Thanks so much for joining us for our first show of 2016. We'll be back in about two weeks with a new show. Our theme was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to our head researcher, Tess Feifel. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. <laughs>